All right, we got to do this quick, man. I got a lot. <laughs> so, turn in your Bibles, first of all, to Luke chapter 19. Put a finger in there or a bookmark or something. And then I want you to turn to Daniel chapter 9. Put a finger in there. Then turn to Zach. No, I'm kidding. Just, uh... <laughs> now, just uh, Luke chapter 19. And then just mark that. And then venture into your Old Testament to Daniel chapter 9. And as you're doing that, uh, I just want to, um, again, I know Juan made the announcement about this uh, New Believers, a foundation class. You guys remember Juan announcing that? Uh, Did he today? Okay, so uh, I just want to kind of add something to that because it can be some confusion about, okay, what qualifies a new believer and, and such, you know. So it isn't by years. I mean, I've known people that um, have the basic tenets of faith a year into it. They're just students of Scripture, and they got it down. And I've known some people who have been saved for like 10 years and have never been challenged to study their Bibles. So this class is basically going to be for just those basic foundations about Jesus and about church and about why we're saved. And we'll mention very briefly about like the return of the Lord and all that. And just to get that down, and just for you guys that are a little further along in your walk with the Lord, after we're done this series on a foundation class, which is really for young believers, new believers, we're going to then go have another series of of classes, and it's going to be on the Calvary Chapel distinctives, which will run for a couple um, weeks, which will take us a little deeper than that. And then... We'll start praying about what the Lord wants us to cover after that. Amen, guys? So if you feel like you just want to get that basic foundation under your feet, you know, and why we believe what we believe, the foundation class is for you. So, And, uh, of course, I'm sure he told you where we're going to meet and all that. All right, Daniel chapter 9. Let's read through that first, and then we'll venture off to uh, Luke 19. Everybody there? Not yet? All right. We'll give you one more second. I love to hear those pages. Like, sometimes I just want to do that for the tape sake. Daniel chapter 9, verse 24. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city. To finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up visions and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Verse 25. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks. And there, and the streets shall be built again in the walls, even in troublesome times. And after the 62 weeks, the Messiah shall be cut off. Highlight this, but not for himself. The people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city, the sanctuary, and the end of it shall be with a flood. Until the end of the war, desolations are determined. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring in an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolates. And of course, you can tell I'm reading from the New King James Version there. Now go to Luke 19. Fast forward. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, your synoptic gospels. Starting with verse 28. And when, he had, and when he had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. Verse 29. And it came to pass that when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount called Olivet, that he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village opposite you, where as you enter, you will find a colt tied, on which no man has ever sat. Loose it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, Why are you loosing it? Thus you shall say to him, Because the Lord hath need of it. 
And so those who were sent went their way and found it just as he had said to them. But as they were loosening the colt, the owner of it said unto them, Hey, why are you stealing my colt? That's Harry's paraphrase. And they said, Well, the Lord hath need of it. And then they brought him to Jesus. They threw their, their own clothes on the colt and they sat Jesus on it, on him. And as he went, many spread their clothes on the road. And when, as he was now drawing near the the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, "Blessed, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees called out from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I'll tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Now as he drew near, he saw the city and he wept over it, saying, if you had only known, even you, especially this, your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you and surround you and close you in on every side and level you and your children within it to the ground. They will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. He saw the city and he wept. Would you stand with me? And let's pray over this text together. Father, again, we, we, we certainly thank you for the time where we can come together and worship you. And I don't know, Lord, Sunday is such an awesome time. God, I, just, I thank you for that. And, and I, I thank you, if not equally more so, Lord. I thank you for the privilege of just wanting to study your word. And we come into this section, Lord, now following your life and ministry where you come into Jerusalem when people are worshiping and throwing down palm branches and their coats and then all of a sudden it stops and you weep and I know I don't know Lord do people stop and think why did you weep and why did you cry I pray Father that today you just give us your mind and your heart on this issue that what makes you weep what makes you cry Again, Lord, we're just asking for ears to hear and hearts to receive, minds to comprehend. Lord, thank you, Father, again for the desire to want to know your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said together, amen, amen. Can you give me a water, please? One of the ushers, give me some water. Hello, ushers. Water. I got five here today. Just one of these. Don't rush. Okay. Uh, When he said this, verse 28, uh, looking at Luke, he went on ahead and going up to Jerusalem. And uh, it tells us in 29, as he comes to these cities here, Bethphage and Bethany, again, giving us the location there uh, called the Mount of Olives. We know he's east of Jerusalem. That he sends two of his disciples to another village. And again, the idea opposite of where they were. And he says, when you go there, you're going to find a colt. It's tied up. And I like how the Holy Spirit shows us that um, it was a, uh, a donkey that's never been rode upon. Which means it's unbroken. So that's a miracle in and of itself for them to throw their coats on and have Jesus jump up there and, and ride on the thing. And... Um, and if anybody asks you, which would probably be a legitimate question, if you went outside and somebody's jumping in my 1995 Ford pickup and just, hey, where are you going with my truck? And if they looked at me and said, the Lord hath need of it, it wouldn't matter. I'd drag him out anyway. You know, so this whole thing is supernatural, man. And... Um, and so they found it just the way they had said. And, of course, they asked the Lord. And he told them the Lord has need of it. And, uh, and of course, we know this time to be commonly known as Palm Sunday or, 
you know, the, 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 or the triumphant day that Jesus rode in, you know, almost 2,000 years ago. Um, later on, uh, in a short period of time, yeah, would you, buddy? Sorry, guys, I still, I still have that cold going on. We know that in a short period of time, even after this day known again as the triumphant entry, that he is going to be arrested, falsely accused. He's going to be beaten. He's going to be scourged, as my old king um, so picturesquely um, shows us, you know, that he was scourged beyond, beyond human recognition. But it's not what this study is about, so I want to be careful. This triumphant entry, guys, is to be a sign, not just a... Not just an account or a story. This is a, actually a prophetic sign um, that that when someone would come in riding on a cult and people begin to worship, that this was a sign that this indeed is the Messiah. So when we read this story, especially verses thirty-five through thirty-eight, if you'll look down there for just a second. It says, when they brought to him Jesus, they threw their coat, their clothes on the colt, and um, and they sat Jesus. And when as he's going, they spread more on the on the road. And as they were dis, uh, um, drawing near to the the descent of the Mount of Olives, a multitude of people began to rejoice, praising God with a loud voice. And uh, notice what it says: for all the mighty works that had that they had seen. So. These common people, the ones that were declaring this messianic prophetic psalm, are the ones who were that had witnessed the miracles of Jesus, especially in the area of Bethany and Bethphage, meaning most of these people actually seen Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead, because Lazarus and Mary and Martha were from the area of Bethany. But they begin to praise him. For all the mighty works. But this is what they're saying. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Uh, see, what, listen, listen. They notice that he is the one now who is the Messiah. Uh, you just try to imagine. It's a beautiful spring day. Here Jesus comes riding in on a donkey. He's coming from the east side of Jerusalem. From those cities of Bethany and Bethphage, as I've already said. He comes over the, the mount or the crest of the Mount of Olives. He now goes over the mount. But in order to then get to, into Jerusalem, he has to go through what is known as the Kidron Valley. So if you guys know your maps, your biblical maps, Mount of Olives, you've got to go down in order to ascend up into Jerusalem. He has to go through the Kidron Valley. It was also known as the Valley of Dark Blood. or dark, you know, This is where, by the way, and I'll just quickly go through some of this stuff because it, it doesn't really relate to the theme. Um, but the Kidron Valley is where um, when they would sacrifice all those lambs, Josephus, the historian, tells us 250,000 of them, um, Herod had built an aqueduct to wash the blood from the Temple Mount, and it would have to go into the Kindred Valley. This is a week before Palm Sunday, by the way. I mean, um, Passover. And so they're already preparing for this. The Kindred Valley, Dark Blood Valley, and this is where all the blood. And here comes Jesus riding on the donkey going through the very same valley. And he's, I don't know, maybe he's thinking in just a, a few short days, this valley will be flooded with the blood of the Passover lambs. And then shortly after that, it will be his blood that will be poured out. To me, it's just a mind-blowing scene. But here he comes. He's coming down through the Kindred Valley. We're told he's surrounded by a multitude. Matthew tells us in his account, they're throwing down palm branches, singing the same songs, or the psalm. Robes are being laid down on the street. Notice what they're saying again in verse 38, if you'll just keep that in view there. Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory on, um, on, 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 uh, in the highest. Uh, again, their confession is this is the long-weighted Messiah. This is the long-weighted Savior. They recognize that. And if you could, just for a moment, put yourself in the middle of that scene and try to experience this. A perfect spring day. 
Here comes someone who's able to raise the dead, to open the eyes of the blind, to cause the lame to walk. This is their Messiah, the long-weighted, the one. And then, and then it's, you know, and again, just as a side note, I don't know if you've ever experienced something like this, but where you come into a multitude of people, and I mean, this can be a multitude, but just as I came walking up here, it's just experiencing with you guys worship and praise and it's just it's such a great i don't know i don't want to say i don't go by feelings in fact in fact i don't even like the word sometimes but there's something within my heart that just springs forth life and joy and i yes that's the body of christ so imagine that day where they're recognizing this is the one who will be our messiah now their ideas of the messiah are different than god's idea nonetheless there's still this joy and you know what guys you know we experience it here but it is getting rarer and rarer as time goes on where people yeah you know it's almost like a funeral dirge when they worship it's almost you know you a friend of mine, I became friend through the email. I don't know him personally. I've never even met, met him, but we've been dialoguing through emails and all. Um, Barry McGuire, and he, he um, said one time he was singing, he was in his house, and he was, and this, the worship song sounded like the blues. And he asked them, could you not just kind of, we're talking about Jesus. Let's lift Jesus higher. Let's do, and they're going, no, man, I'm into the blues. You know, he goes, dude, it's like you're in the basement digging a hole. Come on, let's get up and worship the Lord. So that day, as they're singing this messianics, it was no dirge at all, to any um, degree at all. But then, you know, you see people worshiping like this, and then all of a sudden, what we read in verse 39, there, there, there comes the protest. You know, and, and it just seems like... There's always going to be the counter, you know, and the, the, the Pharisees called out to, from the crowd, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Now, you've got to remember something. This is a multitude of people. Rebuke your disciples. There were more than 12 disciples at this time. Anyone who was following Jesus as a rabbi and following, they were considered disciples. And so, in a week to come... These same people who are worshiping and singing Psalms 118 and waving palm branches and throwing their coats down. And here's our Messiah. They will be the very same vocal cords that will be saying, crucify him, crucify him. What made them turn? Well, in a couple of days, Jesus is going to be sharing with his disciples. Unless the Father draws you, you're not going to come to me. And people didn't like that. And it said at that point, many, many departed from the Lord. And um, Jesus will turn around and will say to his original 12, are you going to leave me too? And that's when Peter says, Lord, where can we go? You have the words to eternal life. And they stuck with him, even through the trials and the scourging and the crucifixion. They they stuck there. They ran. They were afraid, but they still knew who he was. So, it tells us that the religious leaders said, rebuke. He, he, they, uh, they challenged Jesus. See, at that time, they understood that Jesus was against their religious scams and their trickery and, and they understood that Jesus was growing more in popularity. And so what the Bible tells us it was for envy. They hated him so much. And so the Pharisees called and said, Jesus, or Jesus stop these disciples. But I love what Jesus said in verse 40. He answered, he says, well, I'll tell you, if these keep silent, the stones will immediately cry out. For years in my old office... I still have it now. It's just I'm using it as a doorstop in my house now. But I had the stone I always kept on my desk that I got from this area around Bethany and Bethpage and near the Kindred Valley. I thought, wouldn't this be funny if this was one of the rocks that would have cried out if they, if the, they stopped? And so when kids would come into my office and see that crazy little rock I had on my desk, hey, what's that? I put your ear up to it. You might hear something. 
Now it's a doorstop over my house. But he said to them, either the human voices, you're going to either hear human voices or the voices of the stones singing a messianic song, psalm. And this psalm really comes from Psalm 118, and I'll read it to you. Save now, I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray, send now posterity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. Now you would think that, that kind of celebration would continue, wouldn't you? But all of a sudden it just abruptly stops. And I'll tell you why it stops. Because of verse 41, if you look at your Bibles, as he drew near, he saw the city, the city of Jerusalem, and Jesus begins to weep. You know, there's two times it's recorded in the New Testament where we see Jesus weeping. We see Jesus weeping at, um, at uh, Lazarus' funeral, for, for better words, you know. And, uh, but he, he was weeping there. But the word weeping in the Greek there literally means to weep silently or be remorsed. And you see tears coming down someone's eyes. So he's crying. Now we know he's not crying over Lazarus because he knows he's going to ra- raise Lazarus from the dead. He had told his disciples that's the reason we, we delayed going to him. We wanted him to die so that everyone could see the glory of the Son, the glory of God. I'm going to raise him. So why is he crying? at Lazarus's tomb. I'll tell you why. Because he looked at Mary. He looked at Martha. He loved them dearly. He understood what they were going through. They understood that well, the reason they're crying is because God never created humanity to die. They were created to be eternal. And because of the sin, the fall of man, they have to experience this pain that God never intended them to experience. And he's weeping over the fall of man there. Not because of Lazarus. But here he's weeping, and it's a totally different word. This word indicates he's wailing. And I try in my mind, picture this. Here he comes. He's coming from this area where, where he had raised Lazarus from the dead. He's coming down off the, uh, the mountain of, of Bethany. He's going through the Kindred Valley. People are, wash, are worshiping and singing Psalms 118, which is a messianic psalm. And all of a sudden, he stops abruptly, stops, and everyone stops, and he's convulsing. You're not going to continue to worship when you hear somebody going, That's the kind of word this is used in the Greek. Is he hitting himself? Custom says they used to rip their clothes. They used to throw dirt up in the air. They used to allow everyone to see the tears and the spittle come out. And this is what Jesus is doing. And my, my, my theme my title, if I, what causes Jesus to weep like that, to convulse like that? Have you ever once, have you ever seen someone like that? I have, more than once. And it's scary to see somebody do that. I was working 9-11. And I had to do one of the notifications there when they made ID from DNA. It was an Oriental man, and we had to tell him that we finally found his daughter. And he fell on the ground, and no one could comfort him. And this is what Jesus is doing. He's wailing. It's to me a mind-blower because I know him as my Savior, like most of us do today. But he's also God. God in the flesh without sin. He was the perfect human being. You'd think he'd have a grip on this. But being fully human, he convulses. You know why? Look at verse 42 through 44. Where it says, if you had only known... He's talking to the city. Even you, especially in this whose day? Your day. The things that would make for your peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. The days are going to come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you and surround you and close you on every side. Who is he talking to? He's seeing the city. They're going to level you. 
and your children inside to the ground. And they're not going to leave one stone upon another stone because you did not know the time of your visitation. He's weeping and he's wailing because on their part there was an ignorance to know scripture, to know prophetically this day, this glorious day, this visitation, but they missed it. And it breaks his heart. Jerusalem, the Hebrews, the Jewish people should have known this very, very day that Jesus comes in. The day their Messiah would come in, but they would not receive him as that suffering Messiah. If they had only known. And the funny thing too about this, not funny, but it, it's like for three and a half years during Jesus' ministry. Remember, we're following the life and the ministry of Jesus in chronological order. During that three and a half years, there were, there were many attempts to even force him to be a king, to be a messiah. After some of the miracles he would perform, hey, let's make this guy our Messiah. And every time he would say, my time has not yet come. But this is the time. It had come. And, 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 and they, did not, they did not understand it. Now I want you to go, and I want you to go back to Daniel chapter 9. It gives us deeper insight to this. Now, if you're a note-taker, I am going to try to do this as slow as I can, but still try to fit it in the next 25 minutes. You missed the time. You shouldn't have missed the time. This was the day of your visitation. And because of your ignorance, not knowing Scripture, not knowing the prophecies, your, your city is left to you desolate, destroyed, destroyed. Just a a quick intro, our buddy Daniel, the prophet, coming to the end of their 400 years of Babylonian captivity. Remember, they went into exile because of their sin. In Babylon, the prophecy, they would be there for so many years. He knows they're coming to the end of that year. He has his windows open. He's praying towards Jerusalem. He wants to know some answers for his people, the Jewish people. For Jerusalem, he's got specific um, questions and interests. And so Gabriel, the angel, shows up. And he goes, Daniel, I have come. From the very time you started praying about this, I've been sent. Now he was a little hassled. Not going to go through that whole thing. Michael had to come and give him a hand. But now he's here. Gabriel, the angel, dialoguing with our buddy, the prophet Daniel. Okay, And he says, here's your answer. Verse 24, seven, or 70 weeks are determined uh, for your people. Notice it says for your people and for your holy city. This prophecy isn't for the church. This is for Jerusalem and the Hebrews, the Jewish people. That there is a day that is going to come where righteousness will mark them. That will be their identity. Look what it says at the latter part of verse 24. To finish transgression, to make an end of sin, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up visions and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Hey, that hasn't happened yet, has it? Not completely, right? He's saying, hey, we're going, it, there's coming a day, 70 weeks, to finish up rebellion, to put an end to their sin issues, to atone for their guilt, to bring in of an everlasting righteousness, which is in reference to a kingdom, to confirm all the prophetic vis, um, visions, meaning the prophetic messages will be fulfilled, and again, to, un, to anoint the most holy place. So what Gabriel is trying to show him, that there is a specific timeline This is the recorded timeline. It is so specific and accurate that it drives theologians crazy. How can it be so accurate? Well, we serve an accurate God. Amen. This is going to blow your minds. It does me every time I go through this. Verse 25. Know there and understand. What was the problem in Jerusalem of that day? They didn't know. They didn't understand. And that was what caused Jesus to weep. He says, no, from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince. 
There shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks, a total of 69 weeks. Now look at me real carefully. We're not talking about a week like seven days. We're talking a heptad. It's a Hebrew word that literally means a seven-year period. One heptad, one week, seven years. Everybody got that so far? It's important that you understand that. The streets, what's going to happen? The streets are going to be built again. The walls, that literally means the fortified walls, the exterior of the walls. Even in some troublesome times, perilous times. And after 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off, but not for himself. The people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city, the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood till the end of the war. Desolations are determined. Man, that Jesus sees that prophetically even when he... You, and again, I don't want to jump too, too far ahead. So let me slow down for a minute. Remember, they're in Babylonian captivity. They're not in their own hometown. Why they're there is because of Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king. He had, he had attacked Jerusalem three different times. And on the third time, he says, that is it. These Jews are nothing but a headache to me. I am going to ransack the city and I am going to tear down these walls. Important to remember those walls. Tearing them down. And that's exactly what happens. And so here again, Daniel, he sits there. He has all these, these questions. The city sat in ruins. And... Um, Again, he says to him, there's 69 heptads, 69 um, seven-year periods. From the time that a decree goes out to go back and restore. Daniel, there's going to be a decree that's going to be given. You're going to go back. You're going to restore not just the city, but you're also going to restore and fortify the exterior walls. So here it comes. We're talking about 69 seven-year periods, which is a total of 483 years. Write these little numbers down, right? If they're in Babylon, they're using the Babylonian calendar, they go by a 360-day calendar. Not like us. We go by a 365-day. We use the leap year and all these other squirrely things, right, to make it all work out. But the Babylonians used a 360-day calendar. So when you take the 483 years and you multiply it with the 360 days, you come up with 173,880 days. 173,880 days. Not one of you guys are writing. No, I studied this. (laughs) You're writing, you're writing. Okay, see these two girls up here? They're writing, get the notes off of them. So, you might be busy today. So, this is important, especially for you guys, because this is for us as well, not just for the Jews, because we're going to be able to, well, there we go. No, let's forget I said that. So, the decree goes out uh, that you're going to rebuild the walls, and, uh, and as soon as you see the decree goes out, you're going to be able to pull out your trusty Babylonian calendar, count 173,880 days. That's when you know your prince, the Messiah, will show up on the scene. Now, the critical question here is when was the decree given? If you're with me, just put it up. You know, say, okay, I'm going to keep saying that because I want your attention. So when was the decree given to go back and restore? Well, now we fast forward to one of the minor prophets, to Nehemiah. And there in Nehemiah chapter 2, I believe it is, there's this guy, his name is Artaxerxes Longamanus. Well, Artaxerxes, he gives this command because Nehemiah is all bummed out. He's walking around, oh, yeah, yeah, you know. And, and so uh, Artaxerxes, why are you so bummed? Well, I'm thinking about my city, and I'm thinking about the walls. They're all torn down, right? You can read about this, Nehemiah and Ezra and some of the other minor prophets. And he goes, well, I'll tell you what. I'm going to give the decree for you to go back and restore the walls, Artaxerxes began reigning, and uh, he ran for about 65 years. It tells us in Nehemiah, and it came to pass, the month of Nisan, the 20th year, that King Artaxerxes, this is when he gave the, 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 the decree. So when we use that calendar, we know he gave that decree somewhere around 445. Actually, it was March 14th, according to our calendar, March 14th, 445 B.C., 
going, how? How do you get that out of the Bible? Well, here. Here's a little helps. If you pick up the book called The Coming Prince, write this down, by Sir Robert Anderson. He was like this investigator from Scotland Yard. He was a brilliant man. He went back, studied the Babylonian calendar, the way the Hebrews did their calendar, the Nissans and etc. and all that, and, and then did our calendar. He comes up with this perfect timeline. So if you take that, where that decree was given, and you had the 173, 880 days, guess where that brings you? April 6, 32 AD, the very day Jesus comes riding in as their prince, as their Messiah, throwing down the palm trees, but they didn't get it. They didn't know their Bible. They didn't study their Bible. They didn't understand that the one who was going to come, he was going to be their Messiah, but he would be cut off, not cut off for himself, but cut off for us. And they didn't get it. And when Jesus realized they didn't get it, he began to wail. And I think even today, it's still, I, I know it sounds weird, it still has an effect on him when people don't get it. When, you know, the Bible tells us, behold, today is the day of salvation. And there's some people still today that don't know that this is your day. This is the day of your visitation. And how many times you'll hear from this pulpit or from another pulpit, give your heart to Jesus. Today is the day he wants your life. And people reject him. And that's the effect it has on him. Because they just didn't know that this was your day. This was your hour, your moment. Not just for the unbeliever, but for you and for me. When God says, even if it's prophetic or something he shows us in the word, like this is the day I'm showing you something. Don't walk away from it. Today is the day of your deliverance. Verse 26, I had just mentioned it, and after 62 weeks, your Messiah will be cut off. But then, right there in the middle, but not for himself. Well, then who was he? He was cut off. Now, for that Jewish Pharisee, the religious leader, the one who thought he was so close to God, this was unthinkable. No, not our Messiah. When our Messiah comes... Man, he is coming back in military strength. He is going to return the scepter back to Judah. And he is going to remove the Roman yoke. And he's going to set us free. And we're going to have Jerusalem as our capital. And he, you know, you, no. And so what you're saying is, in one, 173,880, he's going to come in as what? A prince of peace riding on a donkey? That's never been ridden before? No way. Silence them. They don't know what they're talking about. But he was cut off, wasn't he? And he was cut off right there at that 62 heptad. To the day he wrote in. No, he was cut off for you and I. He was crucified for humanity. And I know this is an old friend of ours. Isaiah chapter 53. But let me just read it to you. Quietly and passionately. Surely I was born our grief he's carried our sorrows yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten of God but he was wounded for our transgressions he was bruised for our iniquities the chastisement for our peace the chastisement for our peace wasn't upon us it was upon him by his stripes, we are healed. The brutality of the cross, we are healed. We, like sheep, we've all gone astray. We've turned, uh, we have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. He was cut off, not for himself. He was crucified for you and I. And so many times... Individuals, groups, they miss their day of visitation, not realizing it was for their day. 
where it says in the middle of verse 26, and the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Can you imagine Jesus looking at that city, knowing that in 70 AD, like 50 some years after this, 70 AD, here comes Titus Aspasian, a Roman general, comes in with a garrison of people, surround the city, they make an, they besiege the place, and according to Josephus, a, a Jewish historian, that the, the, the casualties and the death of children was so numerous that you couldn't even count the bodies. Some have speculated close to a million. People were dying of diseases. There was a little remnant of Jews that hightailed it up to Masada and tried to hide away there, but only to die. And Jesus sees this, and he weeps. He weeps over them. You know, it's amazing. This prophecy is so time-sensitive this couldn't have happened in, you know, April 7th. Couldn't have happened April 4th. It couldn't happen last year. happened last year or two years. See, the only one who could ever fulfill that prophecy was Jesus on that specific day and hour. So that tells me that anyone who is self-proclaimed Messiah today can't be because they could not fulfill this very prophecy. Now, there is one coming. He will relate to the 70th week. Remember, there are 62 and 69 in total, and then the Messiah will be cut off. This is where we enter into the church age, you and I. No time is really given to that dispensation. But then the 70th week kicks in, another seven-year period known as the Great Tribulation. And he even says, Gabriel tries to show him that in the middle of that tribulation period... There will be some who will be, well, one who will be self-proclaimed Messiah. He will actually come on a white horse trying to deceive people that he is the coming Messiah, but he is the anti-Christ. From the very day that that 70th year starts, 1,260 days, right in the middle of that, that heptad, he will go into the sanctuary and he will desecrate it and he will command people to worship the image and the mark. The false prophet will receive a deadly wound and be miraculously healed. But he's the false prophet. He's the false Messiah. But if you can't have another 102, I mean 1,260 days, then we have the second coming of Jesus. I know this is a lot to really embrace, you know, and, and it could take weeks talking about our eschatology, meaning, you know, the doctrine of the second coming. And that's not what this message is really about. This message really is about what makes Jesus weep. Why did he convulse like this? Listen. To me, prophecy is amazing. When you take your time, do you know there's more prophecy than there is about, no, let me reword that. There's more in your Bible prophetically about the second coming of Jesus than your salvation and being born again. Did you know that? There's more in our Bibles that relates to prophecy. Prophecy should be important to every believer. See, he's so bummed out and he's wailing because prophetically they have been given the opportunity if they had just studied it, they would have known that day. And the honest question would be, if they had known and they continued to worship and repented, would 70 AD ever happen? Would those children have died? Is there a consequence when we don't heed to biblical prophecy? That's a good and honest question. Let's talk about the rapture of the church. Is there prophetic messages about the second coming, the rapture and the second coming? Yes, there's plenty in there about that. And yet some people just want to turn a blind eye away from it. And I don't know why. Some people will live their lives as Christians as if Jesus isn't coming back for another thousand millennial years. And yet everything in our Bible, folks, has pointed to an intimate return of Jesus Christ, which could happen in our very day. Number one major sign in 1948 is when Israel became a nation. 
the rebirth of Israel, the sociological miracle has never happened on the face of this earth before, where a, where a nation or whether a race of people dispersed over the world, God brings them back together, assumes their identity, flies the star of David, uses the shekel as their monetary system, oh, and, and every place, and the Hebrew tongue. It's a miracle. But he says, when you see these things happen, look up, your redemption is drawing nigh. Jesus is coming back, folks. He's coming for us, his church. And he's also going to, after we're with him for those seven years, during why people are being judged by God, we're there in, in heaven seven years, it tells us that, you know, that he will come back and that'll be his second coming. After that 70th heptad. You know, there's over 300 prophecies in the Bible about Jesus going all the way back to Genesis. 300 prophecies that relates to Jesus. There was no way they should have missed this. Let's just take the basic ones. It was prophecy that prophesied that he would be born into the world. It was prophesied that he would be born in Bethlehem. It was prophesied that he would be the descendant of David. That he would be the descendant of Abraham, uh, Isaac, and Jacob. It was prophesied that he would be divine, not a human being, divine, be called the Son of God and God in the flesh. It was prophesied that he would have a forerunner. We know him as Johnny B., <laughs> John the Baptist. He would be betrayed by a friend for, for 30 pieces of silver, prophesied. That he would be crucified. Psalms, Psalms what is 23, right? They pierced my hands and my feet. And yet Israel tries to interpret that to be the nation and not a Messiah. That he would be crucified between two male transgressors or two male factors. That he would be buried in a rich man's tomb. That he would rise again on the third day. And on and on and on. We have all these prophecies. Beautiful description in the Old Testament of the Messiah who would come. And yet prophecy isn't given heed to. And I just don't know why. Listen, I want to read this in closing. In 2 Peter verse, or chapter 1, it says, Moreover, this is our buddy Peter talking. Moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease, after I'm gone. For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses, um, eyewitnesses of his majesty. For, we, for he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory this is my beloved son in whom i am well pleased we recognize that that took place on the mount of transfiguration we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain and so we have a prophetic word confirmed which you do well to heed as light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts now, let me paraphrase it for you so you really get the gist of what Peter was saying. He starts off by saying, we have worked hard to make sure you remember these things after I am gone. Peter died being crucified upside down. He says, we're not trying to make up clever stories when we told you about the powerful coming of the Lord Jesus, about this majestic splendor that we saw on the Mount of Transfiguration. Um, when we heard the voice, this is my beloved son, my dear son, it, it brings me great joy. We received this from heaven and we were eyewitnesses of that holy mountain. It says because of that experience, we have a greater confidence, listen, a greater confidence in the message proclaimed by the prophets, not by him, by the prophets. Because of that experience, we've got greater confidence in them. You must pay close attention to what they have wrote, for their words is like a lamp that shines in a dark place until the, dawn, the day dawns and Christ shines like the morning star in our hearts. And this is what he finishes with. You have to pay close attention to their prophecies. 
Above all, you must realize that no prophecy in the scriptures ever came from the prophet's own understanding or their human initiatives. Now, why am I... It seems like I'm being very, um, I don't know, animate about it, but it's because prophecy was given to us to describe our Messiah, to describe the second coming, to describe even the church. And when you, as a child of God, ignores those prophecies, I wonder if it still breaks the heart of Jesus. I think it does. I think it still does. It breaks his heart. Let's stand together. Jesus said, they missed the day of the visitation. Things that would make for their peace. And I think the reason why many believers today don't really have the peace of God or the peace with God is because they simply don't know their Bibles. They simply don't read it to understand it. To be a Berean. You know, there is peace with God. And there is the peace of God. You're never going to have peace with God unless you have the peace of God. And the way we have the peace of God is to know His Word. And I challenge you today as a Christian. Don't take prophecy lightly. Study it. Know what your hope is. Look, I don't want to drag this out. When Jesus said, encourage one another with these words, pardon me, it was Paul. Do you know what he was referring to? His second coming. Encourage one another with these words. What the, um, God wants you to be rich. He wants you to be healthy. He wants you to have the best things for you. He wants you to feel good about yourself. No, he's never said that. In fact, he said the opposite of you. He says, no, Paul says, no, there's none good. No, not one, you know. Your tongue's even poisoned. No, he says, encourage one, of these, one another with these words. I'm coming, and I'm coming for my church. That gives me great hope, you know, because I see the darkness on the horizon. I see what's, you know, impending, you know. And so I'm going to tell you today, I'm encouraging you. Hang in there. He's coming for us, man. Study it. Study it. Let's worship.